So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear that, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now if you'll drop down to verse 28, after this Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you that you've given us your word so that we might know you, the one true God and the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. And so we might have everlasting life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you uh, to name uh, the major contributions of the Protestant Reformation, what would you say? That's a rhetorical question, lest things get out of hand. But just think. To yourself, what what would I say if somebody said major contributions of the Protestant Reformation? Um, Some of you, hopefully, would say, well, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Because with that goes the absolute authority of scripture. The children, here's your big word for the week, perspicuity of the scripture, your dad would say the clarity because he can't say big words like perspicuity. Sufficiency, that was a big part of the scripture issue because Rome didn't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. Rome still doesn't believe in the sufficiency of scripture. That was a big issue that the reformers were rediscovering. 
back to the source, the ultimate source, ad fontes. What is the source? The source ultimately is scripture, not tradition, not human reason, but scripture. Because we can't trust our human reason unless it's informed by the scripture. And tradition, well, tradition can be misinformed as well if our reason is misinformed. So scripture, that'd be a good answer, sola scriptura. Uh, Some of you hopefully have been listening to me for 15 years and you know that a really big contribution of the Protestant Reformation was the priesthood of believers over against the clericalism of Romanism. We are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. And it doesn't mean that we each one get to decide what the Bible says. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition like I did where the priesthood of believers means, well, what does that mean to you? Oh, okay, well, that's nice. What does it mean to you? Oh, that was something different than her. Okay, what about you, sir? Oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. So that scripture means all those things. No, the scripture means one thing. That's not the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers had to do with the fact that we as a priesthood have the privilege and the responsibility to offer up prayers for one another. That's what it means. It's not about us getting to decide what the Bible means. It's about us praying for one another, us interceding for one another, us caring for one another. It's about the communion of saints, really. So if you said that, I'd been really happy that somebody listened for the past 15 years. And most likely, the number one answer given would be, of course, sola fide, faith alone. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And that, of course, was a big issue because, again, Rome then and Rome now, according to their catechism, doesn't believe in justification by faith alone. You say, well, I have a Roman Catholic background. We do believe in justification by faith. Yeah, but not alone. That little word alone is really important because, you see, Justification by faith alone means that you believe that faith and only that faith which is in Jesus Christ. So see, if you don't believe in justification by faith alone, you don't believe in Christ alone either. That's the reason it's always justification by faith and your good works, your super irrigation, your you name it. The reformers came to the scripture and particularly Luther, one of the professors of the church, one of the priests of the church. And he says, all this time I've been miserable because I didn't know if I was doing enough. I know I believe, but I don't know if I'm doing enough. And the Bible says right here, it's faith alone. So if you said justification by faith alone, you'd be right. But that's not all the reformation was about. 
And none of that, by the way, has much to do with Christ the great high priest, which is the title of the sermon. So why that and why the question? Well, you have to go back to the Reformation again to find out what I'm, what I'm picking at, what I'm trying to get you to say is worship. That is the major contribution in Calvin's mind, at least, of his work in the Reformation, his little bitty book. We often think of the Institutes, right? We think of his massive volumes of commentary, which are still used, still interacted with by academics. But Calvin said, his little book, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, was probably the greatest contribution that he offered. And at the center of that little book is worship, reforming worship. Getting worship back to just biblical simplicity. You know, if you've been around here a while, Calvin we're to do in public worship, corporate worship, what we're doing here today, only that which God has commanded. We have no discretion. As a theologian would say, no discretionary power does the church possess to worship God in any way other than what God has said. Now, you may have grown up in another tradition that said, well, as long as we don't do anything God didn't prohibit. I can think of a lot of things God didn't just outright prohibit. But they'd be embarrassing things to do in a corporate worship service. Not necessarily edifying. I've often illustrated this in the new, in the new members class with with plunging a clogged toilet. Sin clogs us up. Sin makes us filthy. God didn't say don't bring a plumber in and a clogged toilet and put him up in the pulpit and have him unplug the toilet. No, he didn't. But faith comes from hearing, not from seeing. So though God didn't prohibit us doing that, it wouldn't contribute to our faith. So the Reformation's about worship. And this passage that I read is ultimately about worship. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest, offering perfect worship. And we're the beneficiaries. We benefit from that. But if I were to ask you right now, how many of you have ever thought, as you've read about the crucifixion, that, oh, this is about worship? Most of us have grown up being, being, being taught rightly that it's about atonement. 
we just read about it back in Leviticus 16, the priest offering atoning sacrifices. And so we think about the legal aspect of the cross, right? There's a legal transaction took place. Christ, hanging on the cross, shed his blood, offered himself for sin and for sinners. So that his people for whom he died would never ever have to suffer the wrath of God. That we would never ever have to face hell and condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he comes again, for those who look forward to his coming, there will be no mention of sin, the book of Hebrews says. That's where we often set our, our, our eyes and, and focus, right? Oh, because of what Christ did on the cross. Because of his passive obedience, he took our sins. And that's beautiful. That's glorious. That's wonderful. But that's not all that took place. It's not all that took place. And the reformers understood that. Calvin and Zwingli, uh, Butzer, and, and then the successive generations, the English and Scottish and Dutch reformers, even in their first, second, and third iterations of Reformation, they understood this. Reforming worship was important because how we worship God is important. After all, that's why he saves us. You say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought he saved us to keep us from going to hell. Oh, that's just a benefit. Oh, well, I thought he saved us so we could go to heaven when we die. That's just a benefit. He saved us, and Jesus tells us this. In John 4, verses 23 and 24, this is what God desires. This is what the Father wants. Worshippers. See, everything else is just, just, you know, as, as, as my, my, my Cajun friends, uh, I don't know if they still say this, this may be an old generational thing. It's just lanyap. You know, heaven, no hell. That's just lanyard. That's just, that's just the gravy. That's the cream on top. But the reason God saves us, remember, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How's the chief way we glorify God? By worshiping him. And the chief way of glorifying God in worship is in corporate worship. Because that's when we look most like heaven is when we're together. To do what God's commanded us. Nothing more, but nothing less. What God has commanded us. And what Jesus did on the cross was everything God commanded he was both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He was the victim 
and he was the victor. He was the one who offered as the priest, and he was the offering on the altar that the priest gave. Sometimes, you, you, many of you in this room have read, and, and, and others haven't, but you're going to after I mention this. And this fall, if you want to join us in the pastor's class on Thursday at 11 o'clock, we're going to be reading through Professor John Murray's uh, book from another century, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I've read it several times. Uh, but as I, we were talking about what we wanted to do in the fall, what readings we wanted to do as we finished up in the spring, I, mentioned, I said, how many of you have read this? I'm just rereading a chapter in it, the chapter on adoption. It's so wonderful. And we came to the conclusion that some, seated over in this sector, had read it but had long forgotten it. Well, that happens when you lose your hair or your hair turns gray. Others said, no, yeah, I've got it, but I've never read it. And I said, well, good, let's read it. So we're going to be reading it this fall. I've got a box full back there ready for us to go. Um, If you're remembering what you read in John Murray's Redemption, accomplished and applied. You remember that he makes quite a bit out of the, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. And generally, in, and we often oversimplify this to the point of being in error, actually. We talk about the active obedience of Christ being all the things he did in his life, his keeping the law, the first commandment, the second commandment, the third, all the law. In all of its aspects, in its moral, its civil, in its ceremonial. And then we often, and this is where we make a mistake, we refer to the passive obedience of Christ as his work on the cross where he passively submitted himself to the will of the Father and received the outpouring of the wrath of God and assuaged the wrath of God. As J.I. Packer said so beautifully, he was the great wrath absorber. That's wrath absorber for us. That he absorbed the wrath of God, so there is no more wrath. It's absorbed for God's people. Yes, there's wrath for those outside of Christ. That's the reason the Bible's full of mention of hell, condemnation, that lake that never ceases to burn. But there was an active aspect to what Christ was doing on the cross. He was actively carrying out his priestly function to sacrifice himself and to offer that not just as an atoning sacrifice, but as an act of worship. 
See, the sacrifice in the Old Covenant was that. It was, it was twofold. It was atoning, but it was also a worship act. Because it was obeying God. That's what we're doing here today. We're obeying God. We came to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We came to pray without ceasing. We came to read his word and hear his word, to preach his word, receive his word. A couple of, couple of weeks, we'll, we'll also observe the Lord's Supper. Look forward to coming months, we'll have more babies to baptize. I wish we could get on a more regular schedule, you know, to have two or three each month. That would just be hunky-dory for me and for Pastor Morris. We had a whole slew back early in the first quarter of the year, and we'll have some more coming up. You ladies, you young ladies, just take heart. Listen. Remember what Paul said? You know, right now, all the covenant folks, you've guessed, have no idea what normally goes on unless you've watched us online. All the covenant folks are saying, this is not the ordinary sermon pastor preaches. It's usually far more doot, 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 doot right down the line. But that's the nature of this sermon to be sure we don't miss that that's in here. It's embedded in this passage just because we don't read. Therefore, Jesus offered perfect worship. That's what's taking place. That's what's going on. Jesus is worshiping the Father. And he's worshiping perfectly. Jesus, the righteous as he's called, not only deals with the negative, that is sin being taken away, but he also accomplishes for us the positive. And that's not taken, but it's given to us. Listen to how Paul says it. In 2 Corinthians 5, a verse many of you perhaps have memorized, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf. There's the negative. He was made sin. He took our sin. The sinless one took our sin. Aren't you, aren't you glad? There is no sin. God the Father looks at us and he sees no sin. I know that and yet when I look in the mirror... I don't do that often, it's scary, but I look in the mirror and I see sin because I know my heart and I don't know my heart as well as I wish I knew my heart. Right? What does the prophet say? Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. You just think about that sometime. If I look in the mirror of scripture and I see sin, it's worse than that. Because my deceitful heart's denying some sin. And yet Christ Jesus became sin on our behalf, in our place. That's the negative. That's the passive obedience of Christ. But that same verse that we've memorized, and hopefully some of you will say, I haven't, 
that's a good one to memorize. It's, I'll remind you again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf. And here's the purpose clause. So that we might become... Now, we're not taking something away here. We took sin away in the, in the first clause. Now we're getting something. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. That's the two sides of the good news. Our sins taken away and we get Christ's righteousness that he has earned for us. You say, oh, wow, then I'm, I'm as righteous as Jesus. No, that's not what that means. All the righteousness he merited for us. In other words, all the things we were required to do but didn't do and couldn't do because of sin, he did them for us. And we get credit for it as if we did it ourselves. Again, that wonderful Christopher Love quote. God tells us what to do. He does it for us in his son Jesus. And then he rewards us as if we did it ourselves. That's what's going on here. So the first thing, just to stay with the outline, this representative sin bearer between God and man, that's Jesus, the mediator, in between, hanging between the men, hanging between heaven and hell. And he is the great mediator. He's bearing our sins. But there's that other aspect. He's also keeping the law because he's worshiping. He's worshiping in perfection. He's worshiping. We could go down the list of him keeping all the Ten Commandments, but you can do that on your own. But on the cross, he was doing for us a deed of righteousness so that we might appear righteous before the Father. Even in here on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. Years ago, uh, this is not going to be a two-parter, so I'm going to finish. Just hang on. Years ago, in a group of men that met together, I had the privilege of being part of in Greenville, South Carolina when I was teaching at the seminary. Uh, the convener sent us an email and said... Uh, uh, we're going to go off topic this coming week on Thursday night. I've got something I, I need some help with. I want us to talk about. And here's what this godly man said. When we got there on Thursday night and we sat, settled in, he said, I want to know if I'm the only one or if everybody else struggles with this. Now, what is it, Bill? He said, there are Sunday mornings and Sunday nights when I'm sitting right back there in my, in my place, in my pew, and we're singing a great anthem, a great hymn, a great psalm with gusto, and some wicked thought comes running through my mind. Or I look across and I see somebody and I think, well, they need to repent. 
Or I'm in the middle of listening to, to, to the pastor's sermon and I find myself playing God and judging the way he's preaching the sermon. Or saying, yeah, I know what that says, but I, I, don't, I don't like that. Or I get to the end of a psalm and we've been singing and I don't even remember what I said. I don't remember what what words I just vocalized. And then I remember him looking. He said, please tell me somebody else has this problem. If not, I'm lost. I'm going to hell. And of course, in a holy sort of way, we all chuckled. Because if you're honest with yourself, that's happened to you already this morning. Right? It's particularly easy to happen when we have a confession of faith like the Apostles' Creed that many of us have committed to memory and we don't need to even look at the words and we can stand here and we can look out the window and look at those beautiful clouds floating by and we can see the wasps sometimes up here like they are apt to do from time to time and, and we finish reciting the creed and... We get to the end of the service and we're like, was I in there for the creed? I don't remember that. It's like driving home on that familiar road and you get home and you don't remember if you stopped at any traffic lights or not. And we're just kind of walking through it. Jesus didn't. His worship was perfect. He was focused. He was in sync. He was everything was perfect. As the great high priest, he didn't commit the sin of Nadab and Abihu. He didn't offer strange incense. That's not why he died on the cross. Do you notice why he died? You say, well, the wrath of God? No. He could have endured the wrath infinitely forever. We read it. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The book of Hebrews, listen to this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking of Christ, the priest forever. The former priests, they had to come in numbers. They were men. They died. They had to to replace one another. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who has no daily needs like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins Then for the sins of the people, because he did this, Jesus did this. He didn't have to offer up sins for himself, the scripture just said. He did this once for all when he offered up himself, when he gave up his spirit. We, as sanctified as we may be in this life, will never ever offer sacrifice, sacrificial 
worship to God like he commands it perfectly. And that should be a scary proposition for any of us. Because when in the old covenant, they didn't offer just the way God said to, what happened to them? If you don't know, I'll tell you, they died. The reason you and I don't get struck dead on any given Sunday morning or Sunday evening is because Jesus Christ worshiped perfectly. And we get credit for it. His righteous worship is seen by the Father as our righteous. Isn't that remarkable? When we forget what was just said, Jesus heard it. When we forget the words of the, the, the confession, Jesus said them. When we let our minds drift in the, in the long prayer, as is off the case with some of you, I'm sure. Jesus' ear never drifted. Listen to the way James Henley Thornwolf, who, in my opinion, has written most beautifully on this and most ably on this. He says, the position of Jesus is sublime. When standing before the altar, he confesses the guilt of his brethren. He adores the justice which dooms them to woe. Really? Jesus adored the, the, the justice that dooms us to woe he, when he received the wrath? Yeah, uh, the scripture says that. Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him. Wow. He was offering joyful worship even as he offered himself unto, unto death. He confesses the guilt. He adores the justice which dooms them to woe and almost exacts and almost exacts from God as the condition of his own love that justice should not slacken or abate. That prayer of confession, that assumption of guilt, that clear acknowledgement of what truth and righteousness demand make us feel that God must strike, that the edict must go forth. And then he says this, still sublimer, still sublimer than that legal transaction, God pouring out his wrath on Christ, still sublimer, Thornwell says, is his position when with profound adoration of the divine character by his own proper act, his own spontaneous movement, he lays his life upon the altar saying, take it, it ought to be taken, let the fire of justice consume it. Better, 10,000 times better, that this should be than that the throne of the eternal should be tarnished by an effeminate pity. We feel that death is not so much a penalty inflicted as an offering accepted. There's that worship again, that offering offered to the Father. We feel that God is glorious, that the law is glorious because Christ glorifies them. He lays down his life of himself. And then he says this, it is itself, that is Christ's offering, is itself a prayer uttered by the lips of one whose deeds were words, 
a hymn of praise chanted by him whose songs were the inspiration of holiness and truth. He was a priest in his death, a priest in his resurrection, a priest in his ascension. He worshiped God in laying his life upon the altar. He worshiped him in taking it again. And it was an act of worship by which he entered with his blood into the very presence of the highest to intercede for saints. The worship of Christ, perfect, without blemish, without defect, not just as the sacrifice, but as the priest. We as priest, as a royal priesthood, as a kingdom of priests, when we offer worship, that's the kind of worship the Father sees coming up from this place on Sunday morning. Isn't that amazing to think about? So the next time you say, oh, man, whew, I didn't sleep, but I kind of slept through that. Jesus didn't. And the Father didn't see you sleeping. Again, I'd add, is that not remarkable? We get to leave here this morning knowing that our worship, when we worship according to the elements our Savior has given us, we don't have the discretion to go outside the bounds of that. Now, if we go outside the bounds of what he's, he's declared, oh, that's another issue. Jesus didn't do that. We don't get credit for something he didn't, did, he didn't do. But when we worship the way he prescribed in the simplicity of the Savior's words, the Father sees us just as he sees his Son, a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. Let me ask you something. Is that the Jesus you trust? No other Jesus can save you. That's the one you want to believe. That's the one you want to put your faith in. Because he has saved you. He has saved me from all my sins, even bad worship. Amen? Father, thank you. For this Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.